Welcome everyone. I'm, I'm delighted to see how many people turn out in the middle of examination period. Um, I'm James Putzel. I'm Professor of Development Studies at the Development Studies Institute and the Director of the Crisis States Research Center. Tonight we're, we have um, a, a theme under discussion um, which is very important and central to challenges in the developing world today. Um, I'm delighted that Destin and Stickard here at the LSE have been able to organize this debate and discussion on the possibilities for democracy in what we call fragile states. Um, one of our speakers, unfortunately, um, has not yet pitched up, and he may do along the way, but we'll readjust as we go along. In any case, three speakers on a panel discussion is a bit, is a bit heavy, so we'll have more time for, for, for debate. Just before I, I, I introduce the speakers, and I want to introduce them up front in order not to stop the flow of discussion, let me say just a couple of, make a couple of points about the importance of this theme. For quite some time, Western development agencies have been actively pro pro promoting good governance and, and even democratization as often, often declaring that these are um, uh, the most important route to achieving economic growth and development. Now, whether that's so or not, clearly we've had very fast and accelerated development experiences in non-democratic environments, as China uh, illustrates most clearly. And it's a, there's a very big question mark around whether weak states or fragile states are actually ready for democratic forms, or whether promotion of democracy may in fact aggravate conflict and disintegrative processes in this state. And one of the problems in talking and having discussion about fragile states more generally is that there, it's still a pretty nebulous category. Um, there's growing consensus in the policy community that there's an important group of, of, of poor states that are ill-performing but that need development assistance. This is the most important aspect of the labor category, fragile states. In the Crisis States Research Center here at the school, we've really tried to, to clarify the definition of fragility, and really at the heart of it, it has to do with states that are very much challenged in relationship to security and maintaining uh, a basic control over security, territorial control, and just the very basic bureaucratic uh, capacity to exist. What's most interesting really in relationship to the problem of fragility is that if we look at the large set of least developed countries, um, there, there's no doubt that the, the, the most developed countries are the most stable and they're democratic. But at the bottom end, among the less, least developed countries, there's a great deal of variation between more fragile and more resilient states. And that question is a very important one. To what extent can democracy contribute to achieving resilience among the least developed countries? That, that's a big question mark. Um, again, finally, and I don't, I don't want to give a speech here, but to, to, to note some of what's coming out of the research of our center, recently in, a, in, in, in new work, quantitative work, looking at the causes of fragility, 
when we try to, to, to test for democracy, it really has no bearing on whether a state is fragile or resilient. But when you drill down deeper, you start to see, we, we start to see that features related to democracy, like competitiveness, but particularly non-repressiveness, do seem to have some important impact on whether a state is, is fragile or resilient. In any case, I'm going to let Teddy Brett and Paul Collier, two eminent people, present their own views uh, about this. And just um, before I invite Paul to the, to the podium, let me say something about each of them. You don't need, if you study development studies here, any introduction to either of them. Um, Paul Collier, who is professor of economics and director of the Center for the Study of African Economies at Oxford, is also the co-director of the International Growth Center based here at the LSE. Um, students in development studies have definitely read his, his more popular books uh, 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 in, in the last couple of years, The Bottom Billion, War, Guns and Votes, Democracy in Dangerous Places, right on the theme of this book, and, and now his most recent book, Plundering the Planet. Uh, in fact, I know Paul has been talking to those issues, and we, he, 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 had to, he had to shift gears this afternoon to come and talk again about democracy. Paul comes from humble origins in Sheffield, but he's now a companion of the British Empire for the last two years. Um, and we're delighted to have him here. Paul and I sit together on the Global Council of the World Economic Forum that's dealing with fragile states. And so I don't only know about his scholarship, but I've had more chance to, to see his work um, um, related to interventions in really existing fragile situations. Most recently, he's played a major role in the international uh, interventions uh, related to reconstruction in Haiti. Teddy Brett, well, Teddy Brett is really one of the founders of development studies here. Um, he's no stranger to students here. In fact, every student who studied development studies here since 1993 knows Teddy Brett. Um, he has uh, played a very important role in, in uh, building development studies in the LSC. He was educated in South Africa. He taught at Witwatersrand University in Johannesburg. He taught at Makerere University in Uganda for many years and at Sussex. And though he retires again and again, he's been here at the LSE actively teaching and running and contributing enormously to our development management program. Teddy has, has published um, many books and articles, but I just wanted to highlight a very important book, uh, Reconstructing Development Theory, which has, was just released um, last year. It's one of the, more, the most important books in recent years that's exploring problems of international inequality, institutional reform, and social emancipation, the themes that Teddy has been lecturing on um, here at the school. Teddy had, was important in the establishment of the Crisis States Research Center and has um, given a lot of thought to the problems of democratization and institutional change in the developing world. So without further ado, let me invite Paul to take the podium.
Thanks very much. Um, let, let, let me start by a couple of corrections. Only the English pronounce my name as Collier. When I get to France, once people hear my accent, they call me Collier. Um, and, and, and the other correction is I, I'm, I'm not a companion of the British Empire, I'm a commander of the British oh, Empire. Yeah. <laughs> It's really, Excuse me. It's really infuriating that by the time I got to command it, it wasn't there anymore. Thank, thank God. Um, now, um, what, what I'm, some of you may have heard me a couple of weeks ago talking about my new book, The Plundered Planet. Um, if, if not, let me tell you, go buy it. And if you did, let me reassure you, I'm not going to say anything the, the, about the Plunder Planet today. Right? Um, what I'm going to talk about is my previous book, Wars, Guns and Votes, which is now just got in paperback, so you can get that cheaply. Um, the, uh, now, the first point of substance is that the territory we're covering tonight, democracy in fragile states, is really difficult. Right? I mean, there's, uh, um, we shouldn't get, I think, dogmatic about it. This is, this is really difficult territory that, that matters a lot to some of the most vulnerable people on earth and, uh, and we should just accept that this is an area where the academic community can, can, can do its best but that there's, uh, it's, it's a degree of difficulty where we, we, we can't give confident answers. Um, I think the, the confident uh, answers have come not from the academic community, but from the practitioner community. And over the last 20 years, the practitioner community has been extraordinarily confident about how to deal with, with fragile states. Uh, and that confidence, um, only wars, guns, and votes, I describe this as the phase of denying reality. Um, because the, the business model for, for fragile states um, was, uh, was basically the, the diagnosis that was what these societies needed was an election. Um, and an election was supposed to produce uh, a, a government which had two features which otherwise governments wouldn't have. One was that it would be recognized as uh, accountable to its population and the other, related, is that it would thereby be recognized as legitimate. And once you got an accountable government that was recognized as legitimate, that would solve the security problem because there'd be no basis for violent opposition. So that's the, that was the business model, right? The elections produce legitimate and accountable government and that will produce peace. Um, and, uh, and that, I think, is denying reality. <coughs> it's just not borne out by the, by the evidence. Um, I did a, a little work on this trying to look at uh, <coughs> what was the relationship between democracy and various manifestations of political violence. <coughs> and I looked at a, at a range of types of political violence. And there was a surprising commonality of relationship between democracy and political violence. And it was the following, that it all depended upon the level of income. Um, above a per capita income of around $2,700, uh, it was entirely true that the uh, democracy tended to make a society uh, more peaceful. 
in, in all, all these various dimensions of political violence. Um, and as income rose further, democracies became more peaceful and autocracies actually became more violent as, as income rose further. So rising income didn't produce, uh, or higher income levels didn't produce peace in autocracies, it produced uh, greater manifestations of violence. But that below $2,700, and of course all the fragile states are way below $2,700, it was the opposite, that democracies actually looked to be more uh, at risk of political violence than autocracies. Right? Now that's not to commend autocracies, far from it, but it's to say um, we should be wary of this sort of... It's, it's easy to assume that what ought to be the case is the case. Yeah? And what ought to be the case is that democracy should make a society safer. Um, but I just don't find that pattern there in the, in the data. Um, so that was the first bit of worry. And then I, then I started to think, I wonder why? What, what, sort of, what, what may go wrong with democracy? Why isn't it producing this legitimate and accountable government that then ushers in peace. Um, and one line of research has been to say, well, maybe, uh, maybe elections um, are just not enough. That I mean, if we actually think about what we mean by democracy in a mature democracy, elections are the technology for accountability, but elections occur within a context of a lot of other stuff, which is what we mean by democracy. Um, at a minimum, in a properly functioning democracy, there are a lot of institutional checks and balances on how the government can use power. Um, there's protection of minorities, um, but in particular, uh, the conduct of the election is itself um, closely circumscribed. And so I thought, what, what happens if you, um, if you don't have all these institutions? And, and of course, um, if you, institutions always take time to build. I mean, if Jim Robinson were here, he'd tell you they take centuries. But even if we're more optimistic than that, um, institutions, by definition, can't be instant. I mean, you can, you can write a rule down, but a functioning institution depends upon credibility within the society. So the institutional checks and balances are processes which have to be built gradually, whereas elections are just events. And in fragile states, after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was this huge wave of enthusiasm for democracy, but it got overly defined as just hold elections. And so elections in contexts where there are no checks and balances, what can easily happen is that incumbents learn how to win an election using a range of illicit tactics. Um, what are the range of illicit tactics? Um, you can bribe people into voting for you. Uh, you can intimidate them into voting for you, or at least you can intimidate them to stay at home and not vote for your opponent. Um, 
or easiest of all, you can just miscount the votes in the ballot box. You know, um, there are a lot of other tactics. You can. Uh, um, a friend of mine has just stood in an African election, and uh, he didn't even um, wait to see what the result was because uh, the uh, the other candidate had managed to deregister. Um, from the voting register uh, all of his supporters so in the end the, the winning candidate managed to win on, uh, on only 5% of, uh, of the votes of adult citizens um, so there are a lot, of, a lot of illicit tactics so a, a lot of my work in recent years has been with uh, Anke Huffler and together we, we, we managed to get a data set which distinguished between elections which were broadly clean and elections which were broadly misconducted. And, uh, and so we started to, to see, well, first of all, um, does that distinction matter? Does it matter if, uh, if elections are misconducted? Does it matter to whom? Well, the, 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 the guy who's going to misconduct the election, who's in a position to misconduct the election, is the incumbent ruler. So we look to see what does it do to the chances of the, uh, of the incumbent uh, staying in power if he uses illicit tactics in an election instead of an honest election. And we, we express that as what does it do to his expected duration in office. Right? And uh, it, uh, if you can use illicit tactics instead of uh, honest tactics, uh, it increases your expected duration in office by about two and a half times. So the temptation to use illicit tactics um, if there are no checks and balances is huge. What's more, it's very advantageous not just in terms of length of office because it gets you off the hook of having to deliver good economic performance. If you conduct clean if you try and win a clean election your expected duration in office is very sensitive to the economic performance that you've delivered. But if you conduct an election with illicit tactics, uh, the importance of good economic performance is, is radically diminished. And that matters because often the choice between doing policies that deliver good economic performance and policies that deliver bad economic performance is actually a choice between honesty and corruption. Because the policies which deliver bad economic performance deliver, can deliver a lot of money into the pockets of the incumbent and his cronies. So uh, illicit tactics in elections get you off the hook of delivering good economic performance. Um, we actually check that by going back to a a, a, a really a justly famous uh, paper called Do, Do Leaders Matter? Um, which looked at, uh, at whether leaders matter for economic performance. And the, the way it was conducted was um, it looked at, uh, at death in office, when a leader died in office, and there you get a, an exogenous change of leader, exogenous to economic performance. So they excluded all those cases where the leader died in office because 
uh, angry citizens shot him. That would have been to allow endogeneity into the system, and economists hate endogeneity now, so all the endogeneity is removed, just natural deaths. Uh, and what they found is, by goodness, leaders did matter. As you change the leader exogenously, the growth rate changed, for better or for worse. And then Anker and I recently went back to that data set and, uh, and distinguished between the leaders who were subject to clean elections and the leaders who weren't. And what we found was that all the importance of leaders came from the leaders that were not subject to clean elections. The leaders who changed but were subject to clean elections, there's no significant change in economic performance. In other words, the clean elections did discipline the, the, the leader to deliver decent policies, even if he'd rather not do. Because he knew that if he didn't do that, he risked being thrown out. So elections do work in delivering better policy, better economic performance. In other work, I can, I've found that they deliver better economic policies. But in both cases, only if uh, the elections are cleanly conducted. And if you haven't got checks and balances, the incentive for the leader is not to conduct the election properly. Um, the the, the democratisation wave occurred after the fall of the Soviet Union. There was this great pulse of, uh, of elections around the world and uh, Jim Robinson who hasn't managed to get himself here um, did, a, did, a, did a famous piece of work um, which I'm going to just draw on now and um, it was about the extension of the franchise in uh, basically in Europe that occurred during the 18th, 19th centuries. And his argument went something like this, that um, why was the franchise extended? Because citizens, excluded citizens, managed temporarily to protest, basically to threaten revolution. Uh, and it was a big investment on the part of ordinary citizens to make that protest. And ordinary citizens knew that they couldn't keep that level of protest up. And so the elite was faced with a choice. Either you, you, it's not enough just to say to other citizens, don't worry, we'll, 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 we'll introduce some welfare benefits or something. We'll do some sort of redistribution. Because ordinary citizens would then have known, well, that's reversible. And once we've quietened down and can't afford another round of protest, all these things will be reversed. And so the elite understood that in order to avoid revolution, which was the only other option for ordinary citizens, they had not just to redistribute, but they had to lock in to redistribute, redistribution. So that temporary ability of citizens to, to protest created a permanent shift, the elite permanently shifted by granting an extension of the franchise, and a non-reversible shift of power. And that headed off worse for the elite. It headed off revolution. So I, we, I, and I took that idea of, of 1991 as a temporary fall in the cost of protest. And you remember all across 
the developing world. There were basically protests that kind of imitated, inspired by the fall of the Soviet Union, by those protests in Eastern Europe. So there was a temporary cost in the fall, uh, fall in the cost of protest. And that seemed to produce two um, switches. If you distinguish between countries that had clean elections before 1991, countries that had dishonest elections before 1991, and countries that had no elections before 1991. Yeah? Among the countries that had clean elections before 1991, nothing happens. Once you've got to clean elections, you basically stay with clean elections for the next 20 years. Yeah? Okay, Florida, but they got out of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, um, the countries that started with dirty elections, about half of them managed to make it to clean elections and then basically stay there. So in those countries where citizens have seen dirty elections, that temporary protest produced this, this pulse of effort which made it built the institutions that created clean elections. And in the countries that hadn't had elections, not a single one in our data set makes it all the way to clean elections. A lot of them make it to elections, and they're all dirty. In other words, that temporary pulse of protest was kind of misdirected. What people thought, they, they miss, ordinary people in these societies, in a way, misdiagnose the problem. They diagnose the problem as what we need is elections. And that put the cart before the horse. What they needed first was the institutional checks and balances to make elections for you. So, there's this range of illicit tactics which we got stuck with. Can they be countered? Can they be seen off um, in work with uh, Pedro Vicente um, I've been trying to to run some of these fancy randomized experiments to see whether uh, it's possible to, to counter them and, um, uh, one um, was uh, we, we decided would it be possible to counter political to, to counter violence intimidation of voters, which is very common in a lot of, it's a very common illicit tactic. And so we, uh, we chose the, the Nigerian president. If you want to study violence, you don't want to do a parish council election in Switzerland, right? So <laughs> we, we chose the, the Nigerian presidential election of, uh, of 2007, and we teamed up with a local NGO in Nigeria, and they ran a very impressive campaign against violence, which they randomized in different constituencies. And then we evaluated, did it reduce violence? And, uh, and then what was the consequences of that reduction in violence for turnout? And what we found was, indeed, um, the campaign did reduce violence. More importantly and more effectively, it, re it encouraged people to be braver, because people knew that other people we're going to turn out to vote. The campaign was say no to violent politicians. 
And so what that campaign did was increase the turnout for the candidates that weren't violent, but it did actually reduce the turnout for the candidates that were violent. Um, we were also able to find out that violence was used systematically, it was used strategically. Violence in elections isn't something that bubbles up from the anger of ordinary <coughs> citizens, it's directed top-down strategically from politicians. But let me close with, so we're doing the same thing in Mozambique where we have hopes of doing these sort of things against a range of illicit tactics. Um, in Mozambique we're evaluating the effect of, um, uh, of having observers at, uh, at elections to see whether that reduces ballot fraud. Um, but let me close with the most disturbing question, which is not can clean democracies be built in these societies, but should they? And I think there's a question mark here because um, even clean democracies in fragile states can be divisive. Um, after all, they, the, what tends to happen is um, the political parties are going to be organized along the lines of the old cleavages. Um, and so the danger is that in a fragile state, the, the government or whoever wins the election um, uses that to say, we have power. And, and so the idea of one group gaining victory over another group through the ballot box uh, is not what these fragile societies, post-conflict societies need. So let me close with what do they need? What should be the priority in these sort of fragile post-conflict states? And I think it's not uh, elections and uh, electoral democracy. That can come, but it should come <coughs> later. I think one pr priority is to try and heal these divisions and try and build a sense of common citizenship. There's a great paper by uh, Ted Miguel um, called Tribe or Nation, which compares uh, Kenya and Tanzania, same districts, same sort of ethnic mixes. And what he shows is that um, Nyerere was successful in Tanzania in building a sense of common identity in taking away the importance of ethnic identity. What he shows is that in Tanzania, um, communities that are ethnically diverse are still able to cooperate very effectively. Whereas over the border in Kenya, after 40 years of ethnic politics, um, ethnic diversity cannot be managed. That the, society, the communities which are ethnically diverse cannot cooperate. They can't cooperate to supply the public goods. And so there's a fundamental task of leadership to build common citizenship, common identity, before I think democracy uh, can function very well. So one thing that matters is nation building, and then uh, three final things, and then I'll shut up. One uh, is clean money flows. Um, the power of political crooks rests on the power of patronage and the power of patronage rests on dirty money. Uh, and so in post-conflict societies where so much of the money is actually provided by donors, it's vital 
to have clean budget processes. When money leaks in a dirty budget process, it's not that it leaks into the ground and is wasted, it's that it's captured by crooks who build political patronage systems. Okay? And there's a lot that we can do to counter that. We can make sure that the budget processes themselves are clean and we can insist that our own companies in doing business with these societies are clean, uh, don't bribe their way into contracts. Britain has a terrible record of, uh, of, of uh, failing to prosecute for bribery. It's only prosecuted once in 10 years. Right? And that was because the company came and said, please prosecute us. Right? The management changed hands and they were horrified by what the previous management had done. Right? I know because I was the expert witness. Right? What actually happened as a result of that bribe was that the, uh, a middle-ranking government official used the money not for high living, he invested it in patronage. By the time of the court case, he was his country's Minister of Transport. Right? That's the cost of corruption. Right? You have crooks in power. Um, so clean money Inclusion in government, and inclusion means power sharing in government. I mean, I'm, frankly, look, look what we tried to insist on in Northern Ireland. Um, actually, the voting in Northern Ireland was part, was part of the problem, not part of the solution. What happened in the voting was that the two communities, Catholic and Protestant, polar, voted for the extremes. Before the settlement, the two largest parties were the moderate Protestant party and the moderate Catholic party. Okay. And then as a result of voting after the settlement, the citizens in each camp voted for the extremes. Why? Not because they believed in the extremes, but because they wanted subsequently in the negotiations, you want your side to, be, to start from an ex as extreme position as possible because then you, you benefit in the negotiations. And so all citizens saw that, and they just voted for the extremes. So now you've got power sharing between the extremes. Right? But you have got power sharing. The British government had the sense to realize that the only structure of power that would work in Northern Ireland was not winner-take-all. It was, it was coalitions across the divide. And that's, I think, true of fragile states, that elections which produce a winner and a loser are just dysfunctional. Uh, and finally, um, citizen power. Democracy and elections as conducted in fragile states actually doesn't significantly enfranchise citizens. Yeah? It should, but it doesn't. They're herded along to periodic elections or they're shut out of elections because they're deregistered. And in the meantime, they're kept in the dark about decisions. And so, in fragile states, what needs genuinely to happen is in building informed societies. Once citizens are properly informed, they have all sorts of ways of influencing government over and above the ballot box. So we started the international community by denying reality. In order to change reality, first we need to face it. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry.
very much, Paul. Um, Paul. Paul has, I think, laid out some important propositions about problems of post-democratic transitions that arise when we have formal democratic constitutions that are not associated with what I would argue were the social, economic, and political preconditions that are necessary for what I call democratic consolidation. I use that term, I've taken it from a book by Stepan and Linz, who write this book about consolidating democracy. And their argument is that it is one thing to introduce a democratic election. The more important thing is to create not just the institutions, but the organizational systems of all sorts and kinds that are ne necessary to turn democratic rights into democratic capabilities. Uh, and what I'd like to do then is, in a sense, to step backwards into the political theory that I was really learning when I was doing my first degree in Johannesburg in, let me confess it, 1956 and 1957, uh, when I was living in a racist society in which I was fortunate enough to have a vote and a lot of privileges, and 80% of the population were being systematically denied them and where the major debate was about whether we should or could actually give a vote to everybody without being overpowered by some black horde that was going to take all our white people's rights away from us. And so the sorts of things that I was doing, reading John Stuart Mill on representative government, uh, Hegel and all those other people, was really asking this fundamental question, what does it take to move from a situation in which we have authoritarianism in order to keep control over subordinate classes, as was in fact the case systematically in South Africa, to forms of democracy which would make it possible to include everybody's rights into the political process uh, and make it possible for them to not only assert their rights, but also behave in responsible enough ways to make it possible for effective political and economic development to continue. And those problems of democratic consolidation have always been there, they've always been very serious. Paul talked rightly about the fact that the last 20 years has witnessed probably the biggest wave of democratization in human history. But let's be clear, as Huntington pointed out, this is the third wave of democratization. The first wave of democratization occurred around the First World War and after it. That wave crashed. Think about the 1920s. Think about the shift to fascism in Western Europe. The fragile states of what? Germany, Italy, Portugal, France. They lost their democratic institutions in the 1920s and 1930s. Latin America was overwhelmed with military dictatorships. Think about the second wave of democratization immediately after the Second World War with decolonization. Every <coughs> colony was given, was given a democratic constitution as a precondition for becoming independent. And as my supervisor in the 1960s said, democracy in Africa turned out to be one man, one vote once. Uh, and indeed, Uganda, the country that I lived in and worked in, had an election in 19. 1961, the next election that was a real election was only in 1996. So what we've got to realize is that there is always a pressure for democratization because it's seen as the first best option for society in which individuals are being encouraged to be free. 
But democratization requires major conditions to be met if it is going to work successfully. And what I want to do in the limited time at my disposal is simply set out what seem to me to be the most important preconditions for democratization, look at the problems associated with meeting those conditions in weak states, and then say a little bit, if I have any time at the end, about where that leaves us now, where we have large numbers of weak states who, that as Paul has correctly pointed out, are operating what actually are fake democracies, are manipulated democracies in which democratic rights are being systematically denied by the manipulation of elections and all the other processes that he talked about. And I think we can identify three sets of conditions that need to be met. The first is the existence within a society of an appropriate systems of values and understandings. Democracy cannot operate in societies in which the majority of the population operate on the basis of values and principles that are anti-democratic anti in terms of their fundamental orientation. These principles, we can identify three kinds of, I think, very fundamental principles. The first is that there needs to be a, an acknowledgement of the ethical obligations that are involved in sustaining a pluralistic national system, national society. Democracy presupposes pluralism, it presupposes a willingness to allow other people to have rights, express those rights and compete with you in order to achieve their rights. Secondly, democracy is built around the principle of personal individual autonomy. That is to say, there is no point in my expressing a vote unless I am free to express a vote that represents my interests. If I live in a society in which the principle of individual freedom is not institutionalized in a broad cultural sense, if I live in Afghanistan, where, as I said to my students, and I hope I don't insult anybody by saying this, a lot of people have to walk around Afghanistan looking through two holes in a bag. I'm not really quite sure about what sorts of political rights people who are systematically subordinated in that kind of way can, can, possibly, can, can possibly exhibit. And thirdly, of course, we need to have associated with that the absence of systematic commitment to exclusivistic collective obligations and identities. I'm thinking here about sectarianism, uh, ethnicity, and even class identities. To the extent that people are committed to a sectarian identity that, for example, denies the right to exist to people who are not, whatever, Catholics or Muslims or Shiites or Sunnis, or Baganda, or Afrikaners, or, or Zulus, uh, we simply can't have a viable democratic process in societies where those kinds of cultural principles dominate. And also, we need to have an appropriate systems of understanding. Running a democracy is not a simple business. People have to understand what the requirements are. They've got to know what it means to vote, They've got to know what it means uh, to, go, to go out and organize political parties and organize the political system. And of course, flowing from that, my second precondition is that we need to have 
a strong and viable system of organs for political representation and the diffusion of information. So political democracy depends upon the possibility of having competitive elections on a regular basis, and competitive elections require strong political parties that represent the, the full range of pluralistic interests in any society. And of course, parties simply compete for power, but of course, politicians have to govern over a five-year period. They can only govern effectively if there is a strong system of political interest groups who can represent the interests of all the major groups in the society. So those things are not changed by introducing an election, and I come back here to Paul's point about the fact that democracy takes time and energy and effort to build. Those things require capacity, organization, information. And then, of course, democracy only is only as strong as the information systems. Through people find out what's been going on. It is only because the Daily Telegraph managed to dig its way into a whole lot of apparently confidential material and discover that half of our politicians had their hands in somebody's pocket, that we had the whole political crisis here. And we wouldn't have had that if we hadn't had a free press and a press with the capacity to do those kinds of things. And of course, beyond that, people don't recognize this to the same extent. Democracy depends on the capacity for rigorous scientific research. Because the kind of policy judgments we make about policy, the kind of judgments we make about political and administrative practices, depend on subjecting them to informed scientific investigation. The individual citizen is not capable of making a clear judgment about whether the new Cameron Clegg uh, budget decisions to cut $6 billion is the appropriate thing to do at this particular time. So the strength of democracy requires the fact, the existence of experts who can give ordinary people like us reasonable judgments on which to, to base our, our um, judgments about what our rulers are doing. And thirdly, and again, this is something that tends to be left out by political theorists and political scientists, but is just as critical. And it seems to me, and again, I echo some of the things Paul's been saying here, that democracy depends on the existence of a strong, stable, and non-repressive capitalist system. Most all of the strong democracies have actually uh, are operationalized in, uh, in strong capitalist states. On the one hand, Milton Friedman, I think, wrote his seminal book in the 1960s in which he argued that democracy was impossible in centrally planned command economies because in a centrally planned command economy, the government employs everybody and therefore nobody can afford to vote against to, to vote against it because basically they're voting against their employer. <laughs> the existence of dispersed property rights makes it possible for people to organize politically, to fund political parties, uh, and to be able therefore to construct democratic rights and democratic capacities. Uh, and secondly, of course, a strong capitalist economy provides states with the capacity to extract the taxes and resources needed to provide public services, public goods, to redistribute income in order to over, overcome uh, inequalities, to provide safety nets and all the rest of it. Now, if we look at those principles and then say, well, let's go from those basic principles 
uh, and go to somewhere where I lived for eight or nine or ten years, Uganda from the 19, in the 1960s, in the 1970s when Idi Amin came in and was beating the brains out of any opposition politician he could find, literally, I have to say, not figuratively. Uh, in South Africa, where I grew up, where democracy was systematically uh, ignored. How do those conditions play out if we think about what it is to live in a fragile African or Central American or Central Asian state? And of course, once we set that stall out, once we identify all those conditions and in a cold-hearted way go along and say, well, okay, you're demanding democracy for Uganda. How many of these conditions does it meet? And the answer is very, very few, unfortunately. If we look at, in many late developing societies, and ask, what about the sort of values and cultural values and so on? And we see that late developing societies with high levels of scarcity, uh, non-democratic pasts tend to be heavily influenced by, by exclusivistic values. Look at Germany in the 1920s and 1930s. It wasn't, the Holocaust wasn't organized by a poor third world society, it was organized by Germany. Uh, a function of the fact that racism of an extreme kind was operated in, in, in you know, these relatively <coughs> rich societies as well. Of course, in South Africa, democracy was impossible because basically Afrikaners didn't believe that black people were humanly capable of exercising effective uh, political and, and economic rights and systematically excluded them. We look at sectarianism. If we ask the question, why, did demo why has democracy failed in Iraq? The answer is you know, an American occupation in Germany in the 1940s actually leads to a successful democratization and American occupation in Iraq leads to a massive intensification of sectarian killings and civil war. So we're looking at the preconditions and we can see that in those contexts, sectarianism in Iran, India, Iraq, and again if we think about why we got communist dictatorships, we can see that intense class conflict and class antagonisms that led to Marxist and communist and indeed right-wing fascist arguments that we have to systematically suppress the rights of either capitalists or workers in order to overcome tendencies to economic disintegration. So what we get in these contexts, instead of cooperative democracy, competitive but cooperative democracy, is adversarial competition and dictatorships or systematic electoral manipulation. Secondly, of course, if we look at the organizational issue, the problem with most late developing states is that all parties except for the government party were systematically suppressed. All interest groups that didn't represent the interests of the dominant elites were systematically suppressed. So nobody who wasn't part of the regime was given any of the experience and capacity to learn by doing what it means to create a party, to conduct an election, to form an effective interest group, to intercede on a, on a reasoned basis with proper research to change policies, 
Instead, they had to learn all these things after the transition to democracy, and it's hardly surprising. In Uganda, the decision to adopt a democratic constitution came only five years. They find that the election came only five years after the government decided to have democracy, and so the political parties had absolutely no experience. Again, uh, authoritarian rulers suppressed alternative forms of information. Very poor societies find it very hard to build effective newspapers. In southern Sudan, they've just had an election in the southern Sudan, 10% of the population are literate, 90% of the population are illiterate. And in most of Uganda, even the people who are semi-literate have no access to newspapers, no access to information, and to assume that they are making informed judgments about their politics is pretty problematic. And of course, we don't have the, the research capacity to back these things. And of course, finally, late and incomplete capitalism actually generates intense levels of scarcity, intense adversarial competition for resources, and rent-seeking behavior. Uh, if we are going to have rapid capitalist development in poor societies, we have to have very high savings rates. So very high savings rate in a society in which the average person is earning a dollar or two dollars a day means that people are being pushed to the absolute limits, and it's hardly surprising that out of that what we get is patron-clientalistic linkages in which people are willing to sell their soul to a patron and the patron is given every, uh, is rewarded if they can go out and use force or various sorts of bribery and corruption to give that person a job or a place in school or, or all of those kinds of things. So what we can see is that pre-capitalist economies uh, also generate dependency systems uh, in a pre-capitalist economy. Basically, <coughs> people's access to resources is determined by patron-clientalistic links. Those patron-clientalistic links then become the basis on which political parties and political, uh, political loyalties are formed. And those patrons who become the politicians who get elected to power use their clientelistic links to go on get, getting people to vote for them, even though they are systematically ripping off resources and doing all the corrupt and dirty things that Paul talked about. And that's not an accident. It is not something that you can simply correct by moral exhortation. It is a function of the limited levels of development of the capitalist system in these, uh, in these societies. And finally, uh, in late developing societies where we also have very weak capitalist firms, the, capit the West wants to create a capitalist revolution in Africa. The capitalist revolution requires the creation of capitalist firms. You can only create capitalist firms by giving them something because capitalist firms can only start generating profits after they've invested the money in setting up the firm. So how do you take the first step into capitalism, well, basically, you need rents. So us in this country, we went out to the rest of the world, and we stole it from the Spanish and Latin Americans and the Indians, and we brought that money back there, here, and we set up our own firms. Unfortunately, from the point of view of Africa and so on, they can't come here and steal the money from us, although 
they have managed to persuade us to give 0.3% of our gross national product in, in donor aid, which if you think about it's a lot less than we stole from the Spanish in the 17th and 16th and 17th centuries. But therefore, in a sense, there has to be uh, rents that have to be extracted from somewhere. And so primitive accumulation, primary accumulation, creates a inevitable tendency towards corruption. And corrupt behavior, of course, then both weakens the capacity of the state and also creates patronage networks that undermine the democratic process. So what we can see, and very rapidly, James is staring at me uh, <laughs> and has been telling me that uh, he's going to stop me quite soon. Yes. But I will turn away. I, that's why I came here rather than sat here. <laughs> so and I don't have a button to cut it off. Let me just very quickly say, <coughs> what, is, what are the implications of this? Does this mean that we can't treat democracy as one of the primary goals of development? And my answer to that is categorically no. Democracy has to be one of the key goals of development. If I ask any of you, would you be willing to give up your democratic rights? The answer, I'm sure, will be a universal no. And if I asked you, what would you do about if you had given up, if you were made to give up your democratic rights, I hope a lot of you would be willing to go out and do very unpleasant things to the people who've taken them away from you. I did actually think about doing that myself, but I actually handed it over. Two or three of my students went out and started blowing up pylons and people at stations in order to fight for democratic rights in South Africa. So democracy has to be there as a goal. If we look at the various processes for which we can get there, we can see very briefly, I think, three different kinds of issues that we have to address. In the first place, how do we explain successful democracies, democratization in autocracies and semi-democracies? Well, it seems to me that where we have had semi-autocracies, Britain, for example, in the 17th, 16th, 17th, and 18th century, when less than, you know, before 1832, I think less than 5% of people in Britain had the vote. Uh, if we look at the, at the Netherlands at that same time, if we look at uh, South Africa, uh, where 20% of the population had the vote. We had elite democracy. The transition to full democracy takes place when, when we've got a successful authoritarian regime that builds capitalist institutions. And capitalist institutions, I will say without saying why, we can talk about it later, have built into them a necessity for democratic processes to manage the state. Let me just leave it at that if anybody wants to raise that issue. Interesting question here, does this mean China has to become democratic in a relatively short space of time? My answer is I think if China goes on developing the way it does, it will confront the need to become democratic, but it's not going to do that very soon. Secondly, why is there still this demand for democracy in weak states governed by predatory elites, despite the fact that all of them confront all these problems that Paul's identified and that I've talked about here. And there are two reasons for that. First of all, authoritarian, predatory authoritarian states, like the regime in power in Uganda before the current uh, Museveni regime took over, 
and indeed the regime in Zimbabwe over the past 10 or 15 years use their use political authoritarianism to systematically expropriate resources from the, pop, the, pop, the population to and that systematically under, undermines their capitalist capacity and systematically undermines the capacity of their states, including their armies, to maintain control. And the effect of that is that excluded groups are brought into a situation where they can potentially resist it. In Uganda, we had a civil war. In South Africa, no, well, that's a different case. Uganda, we had a civil war, which led to a change of government. And one of the bases of that civil war was that they guaranteed that they'd set up democracy after. And so what we've got, and I think more importantly, is that these processes of political predation leading to economic collapse have forced most weak states to turn to the donors for donor support. And since 1991, with the end of the Cold War, donor support has been conditional on democratization. So a lot of these states would not have democratized. Kenya, for example, had locked up its whole opposition, and it was only when all the donors refused claimed that they would take all their money away, that they let out the opposition and organized the election, which they manipulated and, and won. <laughs> and finally, what to do? What to do? I think the point about this analysis is that it tells you that democracy is not just something that happens at once. It is a process that requires capacity building both before and after democratization. All of the things I've been talking about, the necessity for strong organizational capacity, these things can be done in the most repressive states. When I was teaching at Makerere in 1974, when Idi Amin was out beating the brains out of all of his opposition, I was teaching students who, when I came back 15, 20 years later, had now become permanent secretaries and had been active in politics. Uh, and had been part of the resistance to that. And I believe, hopefully without being uh, too arrogant about this, that getting access to the kinds of principles that we were teaching there, just as my students in South Africa went out and started praying their pylons, that's part of the democratization process. And secondly, of course, what this also means is I'm that we've got to recognize that once democratization has taken place, that's just the beginning of the problem. Now is when you actually have to go out and start building the organizational capacities. If you're going out to these countries, join political parties, get into newspapers, start up newspapers, go and teach in schools, because all of the things that I've been talking about are things that have to be constructed. Uh, and that process has to go on all of the time. And that's, it seems to me, is where a really rigorous analysis of the problem of democratic consolidation rather than institutional change takes us. Thank you very much. You can, you can imagine what difficulty I have um, putting a lid on either of these two um, um, colleagues of mine. Uh, Teddy, for 17 years I've been trying, but you're always so interesting to listen to. Um, what it does is it limits my own time to be able to say what I wanted to say, and I'm not going to do it immediately because I'd like to, to give the floor a chance to raise questions and challenges to the speaker. Uh, where, do we, where are our microphones? Yeah.
Is there another microphone up there? Where is it? Sorry. Okay. You have a volunteer to carry it around? All right. Okay, the gentleman up there, first with his hand up. I'm going to collect some comments. From uh, you spoke about the two issue of two fragile states, what is defined as a fragile state, and the insecurity thereof. But we saw in Greece a state which would be theoretically wealthy. We have a situation where you have the, you know, a semblance of chaos in the periphery of anarchy. And if you have a situation in the United Kingdom where the coalition government in a wealthy democratic society probably finds the economic crisis arguably beyond itself. Now, whilst there's obviously a problem of democracy in a fragile state, it seems to me, and this is a question, not a statement, there's also a problem with of maintaining the semblance of democratic um, structures in a wealthy society which is in a state of relative decline. And I contrast that situation with the, a different road to democracy which was taken by both South Korea and Taiwan where they took the, I followed the policy of economic stability and prosperity f in a dictatorship which was followed by democratic government. I won't go on anymore. That was okay. the question. Perfect. Uh, could you please ask on those two points? Thank you. Um, this woman right here. Hi there. Um, you spoke of the importance of promoting or eliciting a sense of common identity or collective citizenship. You both spoke of that, um, perhaps coming before elections. But I just wonder, in fragile states where many groups have been excluded or segmented, how can the existing leadership or an external organisation actually elicit that? Do you have any practical suggestions or examples? Hi. First of all, I just wanted to thank both of you for speaking to us tonight. Um, my questions for you, Mr. Uh, Professor Collier. Um, I was wondering if you could defend sort of the usefulness of your methodology to some of your critics. Um, personally, I would say that a lot of your results fall into one of two categories. The first being that they're sort of obvious tautologies or near tautologies. Uh, for example, in your speech, you mentioned that um, I think you said that basically political, like the relationship between political leaders and economic growth declines when elections are fixed or not clean. Uh, another way of putting that, I think, is to say that uh, political leaders aren't as strong as institutions when institutions are stronger than political leaders. Um, and the second category in which I think your comments fall into is the sort of... Um, those that might lead to sort of dangerous extrapolation. For example, you mentioned the randomized testing in Nigeria, and it seems to me that uh, perhaps sort of anti-violence seminars might not lead to the same results in a different situation. For example, in Zimbabwe, for example. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Right here. Uh, Professor Collier, you, you mentioned that two of the principal features are accountability to population and recognition of a legitimate legitimacy. 
isn't one of the main issues here with fragile states, indeed it could be said with even highly developed states, is that so many are recent artificial constructs. I mean, we've seen this week uh, the increased tensions in Belgium across the, the channel between Flanders and Wallonia, a relatively recent uh, construct of a nation state. We see it all over Africa, uh, the, the uh, colonial legacy. We see it in Afghanistan with um, the drawing of the Durand line, which goes right through the Pashtun area. So I was at a conference this last weekend. I mean, the huge number of tribes in, uh, in, in, um, in Afghanistan and the fact that it's always had weak central government and the great difficulty, in fact, of, of any kind of democracy uh, from the center. And we see it obviously in Iraq with the Kurds dispersed between northern Iraq, Turkey, and, and western Iran. I could go on, but I've made the point. Okay, I'm going to turn to the speakers for very brief response because I'd, like I'd like to take one more round of questions, but I'm also going to throw one more challenge at you, and that is, don't international actors actually do damage by pushing or relying too heavily on elections where, as both of you argued, this sense of common citizenship is not developed? Uh, one thinks about the Democratic Republic of Congo, or one thinks in a different way, almost a, a, an opposite way, about Rwanda, where the demographics of uh, identities um, actually mean that if competitive politics is, is endorsed um, uh, at this point without citizenship, you actually have terrible violence. The second thing is that neither of you mentioned in your talks the condition of basic security. And when there is not a, uh, the establishment of basic security in a place, in other words, a functional uh, unified chain of command, we see often armed groups running in these elections. So security needs to needs to be achieved to allow democratic elections even the modicum of, of functioning. Okay, can I, Paul, you first? Um, yeah, so, so, so Greece and the UK, I didn't really um, a, a democracy can be no better than the degree to which citizens are up to speed in the issues um, in Greece, I, I, I wrote a newspaper article which promptly got translated into Greek, so I'm not going to go to Greece because what I said in the article was the fundamental problem with Greece as being a democracy is that its citizens have been economically illiterate. And so for years and years, they've elected governments uh, which then uh, ran uh, totally fiscally irresponsible strategies. And governments presumably did that because they knew that was the way to win votes. Uh, so Greeks need to learn, because that's what I said, that they've themselves to blame for the mess they're in. Not Germans, not the IMF, Greeks. Um, I think uh, UK we could say something a little bit similar, and the, the disaster is not the present coalition, it was the last election which was not honestly fought on the enormity of the economic mess um, that, that the government had got us into. In the previous government, um, and uh, and, th and that was, uh, I think, the, unfortunately, the, the reality of that election. And all the survey evidence shows that British citizens are, are radically underprepared for uh, the necessary fiscal adjustments. You know, people, the majority of people say um, this can be handled by a greater efficiency in public spending, which is kind of just you know delusional. Um, 
But democracy doesn't have to be like that. I mean, the great object lesson of, of fiscal retrenchment is Canada, where a government did go out and systematically educate the population. Um, uh, so uh, um, Paul Martin led, led that, and uh, I, I talked to him last week about it. Um, building cohesion, are there examples of building cohesion in fragile states? Yeah, let me turn to give you the example of, of what John Githongo has been trying to do over the last year in Kenya. He's been going around rural Kenya um, trying to build cross-ethnic uh, social movement, not a political movement, a social movement, cross-ethnic social movement amongst Kenyan youth. Um, and he's, uh, he's using all the modern information technology to do that. Uh, and that's what's needed, you know. Modern information technology is very powerful. I mean, you know, even some of the ancient technologies, but Milcolin produced a disaster, but you can use that same technology to build cohesion instead of to destroy it. Um, am I guilty of tautologies? Um, I, I think, I'm doubtless guilty of all sorts of technical errors, but I think what I was saying was not really a, a, a tautology. Um, what I, uh, I, I, did, I did a test to see whether leaders mattered, the change of leadership mattered, if leaders were subject to democratic elections, to, to clean elections, and if they weren't. And what that test showed was that changes of leader in unclean elections mattered a lot. The personality, the person, and the personal preferences of the president were hugely important. But that once you subjected things to clean elections, the, the, the person of the president changed, and presumably the preferences of the president, but they were disciplined by the fact they had to win elections. So that seemed to me to be not a tautology. Um, you know, you might say you expected that result, but it actually could have gone either way. We were quite surprised. You um, both don't have to answer all questions. No, no. Um, um, the, um, but I do want to answer the next two. Recent artificial constructs like Belgium. Um, uh, I don't really buy the implications of that, that, as it were, identity is primary. And, every, and all the political architecture has to fit around whatever identities there are. Identity, historically, is actually fluid. And it's, not, it's not super fluid, it's slow changing, but it does change, right? I mean, European nations were forged together, in the, typically in the 19th century. They were political constructs by design, built by leadership, which overcame, uh, initially, strong local identities. Um, and that was acts of leadership. Right? I mean, the myth used in building these constructs of national identity, the myth used was, we've all got common ethnicity. Uh, but that was just a piece of, uh, of, of mythology. It was a load of bunker. Right? Um, but you know, during the course of the 19th century, Bretons started to think of themselves as French. Right? Some of the strategies used were, were often quite brutal. You know, Breton was banned from schools, um, but there was a you know there was a strategy of building national identity, and we cannot you know take Africa. It it cannot possibly be 
sensible to say ethnic identities are the primary, um, political borders have to fit around them. If we went that route, Africa would have several hundred countries. It's already got too many in my view. Um, finally, no, finally, I want to ask your, answer your question. Answer, is basic security a precondition? Um, let, me, let me end with, with this, that the, the, the academic, modern, modern academic thinking on how capable states are built sort of runs through things that states have typically run through the following sequence, starting with security. So security first. They, the, the, the guys who provide security then build, a, build taxation in return for security. Once you've got a tax system, there's an incentive for the government to build rule of law because that enables property rights to be enforced and then the economy can grow and you can capture that in the tax system. Uh, it also encourages you to put in place policies that induce growth and eventually the growth leads to democracy. Um, so that sequence, security tax, law, growth, democracy, is sort of historically how things happen. And what we're now trying to do, I said this in Brussels yesterday before uh, an, an audience of international policy community, and uh, my neighbor on the panel who was archetypally international policy community was outraged to think that uh, we could possibly follow that sequence now. And as I pointed out, the sequence we're actually following now is the opposite of the historical sequence. We start from democracy, then try and put in place policies that induce growth, then get the rule of law, then eventually put in a tax system, and finally think about security. Um, and so my, my panelists from the international com policy community said, of course we're doing it backwards. Um, <laughs> of course. And, and, you know, fair enough, maybe that's the right thing to do, to do it backwards, but we should recognise that we're doing it backwards and it might be quite difficult. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Try to keep it brief as far as I'm capable of keeping saying anything brief. Um, economic downturns threaten democracy. Uh, clearly, democracy is not, uh, is not safe anywhere. Uh, Germany, Italy, Germany, Portugal, and Spain in the interwar period were, by the standards of most late developing countries, highly developed societies. The critical problem is not so much how wealthy you are, but fluctuations. So when you have, as you had in, let's say, Germany in 1929, a massive economic crisis and an increase in unemployment up to more than 10%, what you get is huge levels of stress, huge levels of political <coughs> conflict. In 1929, the Nazi party got 28,000 votes at the elections that took place at that, 28 or 29. 1933, they got 42% of the vote. And the difference between 1929 and 1933 was that you'd had a major depression which had thrown millions of people out of work, created a huge level of insecurity, uh, and had driven people into the hands of a Nazi party. So this is why my focus on the requirement for a stable and equitable capitalist system is very fundamental to long-term democratic stability and growth. And indeed, if the European Union hadn't been able to come in and give Greece some kind of semi-soft landing, 
one could very easily expect another transition back to military government that we had in Greece in the 1970s. If you remember, we had a military junta taking over in the 1970s. You, you raised the point of Korea and Taiwan. I didn't mention them in my talk, although I, I planned to. Successful democratization, but you know, I had this man staring at me and he's quite <laughs> um, Successful democratization, the most successful democratizations occur after effective authoritarian state-managed transformations. And so it was when Korea and Taiwan, South Korea and Taiwan, had built powerful states on the basis of very e equitable distribution, because the Korean economic miracle uh, was one of the most equitable in, you know, in, in history. That then created not just the possibility of democratization, getting rid of all those problems that I talked about, but massive pressures from below, because you now had to take account of a powerfully organized capitalist class, a powerfully organized working class, that were out in the streets demanding democracy and forcing you to go down that route. And that's why, as I said, democracy is, I think, without any doubt, a, you know, the first best system of governance that we've got. We may only be able to give two votes for democracy. I would actually say one vote for democracy. But to come to James's point slightly ahead of the game, can we, can we blame the donors for going to these countries and saying to them, you've got to introduce democratic rights? Well, I think there's a problem about not doing that because, of course, the most, uh, the most politically dis disrupted states were politically disrupted because they'd been run by, patrimon by uh, patrimonial and predatory autocracies. So what was the option for, 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 for the donors? A predatory autocracy comes to you and says, we want you to give us lots of money because we've stolen all your money or we've eaten all your money and now we can't feed our children and give them health care and all of those kinds of things. The situation in Zimbabwe. What do you do? Do you go there and say, well, we're not going to ask for democratic rights. We're going to give you this money and tell you that you've got to go out and build democratic capacities, uh, which, of course, once you've built them, will make sure that you get kicked out of power forever. No, no way. That's not going to happen. So the problem with democracy is you can't avoid it. The other point, problem about it, of course, is that the internal opposition in those countries is demanding democracy. Democracy is not just being imposed on these countries by donors. The NRM that went into the bush in 1971 used as its primary reason for doing that the fact that the 1981 election, 1980 election, had been stolen by the UPC, which had, had falsified the results. And they were probably right. They went into the bush, and the people who I spoke to, the former commanders in the bush, said the reason why the peasantry actually supported us uh, and gave us food and so on was because they believed that the election had been stolen. Now, could they have gone to those peasants and said, give us food to destroy these people so we can replace one autocracy with another? The answer is clearly not. Democracy had to be the first demand on the 10-point program that the NRM fought the, the battle on. That doesn't mean that when they come to power that democracy is going to work. Indeed, it worked rather well for the first 10 years using non-formal 
competitive elections, but over the last 10 years, since democracy has become more formalized, it has become increasingly corrupted and increasingly <coughs> built around patronage and all of those kinds of things. But we can't, what can we do? Say, let's go back to what? There isn't an option. What we've got to do is say, how do we develop these capacities? How do we build the organizations? How do we support newspapers? How do we you know, get girls into school so that they learn about their rights and are willing to go out and ultimately perhaps die for their rights? As the guy I used to play table tennis with at Twitz went out and blew up somebody on the station and ended up hanging from a rope uh, in Johannesburg Central Prison in 1963 or 64. So he went out. In fact, the demand for democracy is not something that people are going to give up because it is that always the demand of the oppressed class. So to say we shouldn't encourage democracy is to say, well, we've got to add our weight to stopping the ANC or the NRA or any of the other organizations that are fighting for political rights from doing so. Instead, we've got to go with that flow, but we've got to become much more sensible about it and recognize the really concrete, difficult, long-term things that have to be done to make democracy work. And that's what seems to me to be the sorts of issues that do need to come up now that the honeymoon of the third democratic wave is, is over. The honeymoon's over, now we've got to get down to actually making this thing work. And it's going to be tough, and it, there aren't going to be any soft options. If I may, just in conclusion, add a comment. And that's that we, in the international community and the donor agencies that are intervening, need to, need to recognize the quality of the insights of what you both talked about, about the conditions for democracy to work. Um, when pressures come very significantly from the international community to hold an election without an understanding of the terrain in which they do it, it may produce or contribute to producing a Rwandan genocide or it may contribute to producing a, uh, an outbreak of, of war. So while, of course, people are, have a normative demand for democracy as part of development, um, but there is a huge responsibility here, I think, um, in relationship to the timing, the emphasis, et cetera, because the costs can be very high. We're going to have a chance to discuss and debate these issues further uh, here at the LSE. The Crisis States Research Center is holding a kind of wrap-up conference to this uh, uh, phase of its work in September, and we hope to have a public event associated with that. And we look ahead for Destin's anniversary uh, uh, conference, which is going to be in 18 months' time, is it? In September, September 2011, 2011, where these, where these themes will be the front and center. In the meantime, we'll be listening to you both on the public airwaves, especially Paul these days, and um, following up on these issues. I'd like to thank both speakers, and please join me. Thank you.